It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk sports? We do. It's a Thursday evening up and down the West Coast. Good evening, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton from our studios in San Diego, along with my co-host John Riley, who normally broadcasts from left field with his opinions. But it's so bloody hot here in Southern California, we've allowed him back inside of the air conditioning. We welcome into our Thursday podcast, John. We're going lots of different places because there are a lot of late-breaking stories that we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, baseball football, basketball, soccer. It's, it's loaded right now. Okay, let's get started. You wanted to throw high hard ones, brushback pitches, beanball pitches. You want to talk baseball, trade deadline, pennant races. Pick a team. Yeah, let's let's start with our, our Padres. And everyone is has these different opinions. You know, do we give up on Soto and Snell and uh, and Hater, or do you think that we keep them for the stretch run? Well, I think the burning question is, and, and you put it up right there in the headline, who do you trade? I don't think they can afford, from a credibility standpoint, John, to trade any of the marquee players. Because even though there's 70 games left in the season, that sends a terrible sign to the people that laid down enormous amounts of money for season tickets that you're giving up on the season. Therefore, I think they try to rent a player or two going through the trading deadline on August 1st that will give them two months that maybe can give them some push. Uh, A.J. Preller said it the best on the road trip in Toronto. He says, whatever we do, we're going to address the perimeter of the roster. Now, that might be designated hitter. Maybe that'll be a rental free agent bat. Maybe it'll be another rental pitcher. But by doing that, it means they don't probably have to give up the blue chippers in their farm system. Here's a piece of history. A.J. Preller, in his first six years as general manager of this team, traded 31 prospects or name players in significant deals. I think the last, I, as I charted it, I think he'd made 21 trades involving 31 guys. 31 wow. included hot young prospects that they had drafted or guys they signed internationally, and then obviously moving out veterans. Now, the burning question, if you're going to do something of significance— There's nothing on this big roster that you can trade away without impacting you. You can't trade Soto because you're not going to get five for one. So you're Mm -hmm. not going to get equal value. And you still have, I think, hope that you can sign Soto to an extension pretty quickly. You're surely not going to trade Snell. I mean, he is one of the front runners of your staff. And if you think you're going to be playing in October, you want him to have the ball. I mean, his last 10, 11 starts, for the most part, have been really rock solid. Now, do you trade guys that are having disappointing seasons to rent a player? Would you trade Trent Grisham, gold glove guy, but, you know, struggles to hit over 200? He could probably bring you a rental pitcher. Do you dare give up on Cronenworth? Because to me, it's like the scouting report. The league has figured out Cronenworth. And that's a position where you want to have a power hitter. You don't want to have somebody hitting 211 play in first base. Do you give up on some of the young pitchers who have struggled, Ryan Weathers and Adrian Morhone? Do you move one of them to get something? So the Padres, they got some tough decisions to make, but I just get the sense they're going to stay in this race as long as they can. They're not going to divest themselves of name players 
And as A.J. Preller said, we're going to address the perimeter of the roster, which to me means some type of short one-year, half-year rental. You're the general manager. We've come in from left field. Give me an opinion with some validity. What do you think they should do? Well, isn't it amazing how they lose three out of four in Philly, and immediately we're all like, you know, burn it down, sell them off, and then they win the first two in Toronto. We're like, hey, we got a chance, you know. We're just so emotional about this. Um you know, if they're if they're going to hit the eject button on any of their star guys, hey, you're right. You know that that's a signal to the fan base that you know they're not in it to win it. Um, most likely, you know, you've seen when Preller made the trade. Like for example, who was that hitter they picked up? That was a DH from the Red Sox a couple of years ago. That. Uh, can't remember his name, but they gave up like a couple of like, you know, lesser prospects to get a rental for a couple of months. That's not a bad way to go. If they want to just fill in some holes, they need to solve the problem at DH and potentially at first. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter saying maybe Cronenworth needs to be like a Ben Zobrist, a super utility. And you just put a big bat in there at first base. Yeah, I find it tough to be down on Cronenworth because I think he's a self-made guy. He's turned out to be a really good first baseman. Oh, yeah. Defensively. But he's just not hitting. He didn't hit at the end of last year, and he surely has not hit this year. But he's probably got some marketability, and you might be able to get a rental there. I think they're going to make one or two deals, but they're not going to make, I don't think, blockbuster deals. And I'm just not ready to blow the thing up yet, even though, I mean, with the loss now— that they had on Thursday afternoon in Toronto. They're just, they're so far back and they got so many teams they're going to have to vault over to position themselves. Now, I was hopeful that, you know, maybe they blow through the Skydome in Toronto, win three there, go to Detroit and bash a bad Tiger team, come home and do the same thing to the Pirates. I mean, geez, if they could have anything close to a nine-game winning streak before Texas and the Orioles roll in here, before they have to go face the Dodgers for four, maybe there's hope. But, John, there's so many games they have to make up. And these other guys in front of them are not going to be stationary. It's not like those guys are all going to give ground Mm -hmm. and come back to the Padres. It's going to be a challenge. Okay, from San Diego, let's go up the road. Okay, up to Dodger Stadium there, Chavez Ravine. What do you think they're going to do, Lee? they got problems on the mound. They really are beat up. They've got seven different starting pitchers that have spent chunks of time on the injured list. And the latest is Clayton Kershaw. And this shoulder thing came out of nowhere. 10-4 and four record, 2.55 ERA, and now all of a sudden, cortisone shot in the shoulder. Uh, Julio Urias, just not the same pitcher. Has not been the same pitcher that we saw last year that went, what, 21-4? and four? Mm. Um He's really frustrated. His stuff is not what it was before. He's had some physical woes along the way. Of course, there is no Walker Bueller. There is no Dustin May. Uh, They're sending the kids out there to pitch every fourth day. Bobby Miller has given them a lot of quality innings, but he's not getting them, not dominating now as he did when he first got there. Evshian is really competitive. He's come out of nowhere But he's a kid, and he'll have some bad outings to complement, offset the good outings. I don't know what they're going to do with Mike Grove. I don't know what they're going to do with Gavin Stone. Those guys are really spotty, and I don't think they're ready, but they're having to throw some. Uh, The bullpen can be leaky. The bullpen can be dominant. Bullpen's been very skitterish along the way. So here's the question, because there are pitchers out there you can go get. You can go get Marcus Stroman of the Cubs. 
maybe as a half-year rental or maybe longer, and he's really had a bounce-back season. But you're not going to get those guys unless you're willing to trade one of the really good young arms. And then there's the Otani question. Do you just put all the chips at the middle of the table and ask the Angels, pick four that you want, and we'll make this deal for Otani right now. But Bobby Miller, Evshian, Ryan Pipio, who's only had a couple of starts after missing, missing half the season with a spring training oblique, Mike Grove, Gavin Stone, uh, they could put Bruzdar Greaterall, who some people think is going to be a closer in the future, maybe into a deal. Do you deal Miguel Vargas, a second baseman? James Houtland, the center fielder, had the good start, but has just really kind of hit a wall. Do you deal Mike Bush, who's hitting the daylight side of the ball, Triple A? I just ran through a list of a lot of blue chip names. I would think they would be able to go get a quality starting pitcher with by giving up one of those pitchers, or maybe this collection of good guys goes into a deal with the Angels for autonomy. Oh, you're out in left field. Do you want a deal for the Angel Slugger, the pitcher DH, or do you want to just rent guys and try to get one guy to put you over the top at the deadline? Well, I mean, if you can get Otani, that solves your pitching problem. At what price? Well, it's a big price. But, you know, that might be his ultimate destination anyways. This might be a way to acclimate him to L.A. and really sell the Dodgers franchise because he's definitely going on the free agent market. But isn't it amazing how for the longest time the Dodgers have always had top-of-the-line starting pitching? And Dodger Stadium was always a pitcher's ballpark. And now suddenly the wheels have fallen off there. So this is amazing. It's a different kind of a Dodger team than I'm used to seeing. Well, it's injuries. And you never know with pitchers, are they going to hold up or are they going to break down? And the Dodgers have had an inordinate number of phenoms break down. I mean, a year ago, Walker Bueller was almost unhittable. And we saw what Dustin May was on the flashes of Mm -hmm. either side of the two surgeries. You say, wow, typical Dodgers. But uh, if I were them, I'd make the move on Otani because Otani is a difference maker. And by the way, he's a frontline starting pitcher. Yeah. In addition to being on a track to maybe chase Aaron Judge's home run record down, I think that's where I would concentrate everything in Anaheim. Okay, let's go from there. Let's go back into Orange County. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the Angels. Where are the places that maybe Otani might land? Well, it appears there are four bidders. Agents last week had indicated to me that the Angels were taking trade offers. We don't know if Artie Moreno has made an offer that was rejected, or Otani's people said, he is going to go on the market November 1, be prepared to bid at that point in time. Uh, or have the Angels just decided they're not going to pay anybody $50 million a year for the next 10 years uh, and have decided let's restock everything in the cupboard and move him now rather than lose him November 1st. The Dodgers, we talked about the significance of all the layers of talent they have at AAA and some at AA. Seattle has jumped into the conversation. Otani spends some of his offseason in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. The Mariners, of course, had the history with Ichiro Suzuki and a number of other Pacific Rim players. The Angels have got a myriad of young pitchers led by Logan Gilbert. They might shop. They've got a myriad of young everyday players, some at AAA Tacoma, some with Seattle. they got a good shortstop in J.P. Crawford. So where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's linkage of Otani to the Pacific Northwest. 
The Yankees are out there because they are the Yankees and they can write any check and they got below the luxury tax threshold. Yankees have got a wide variety of players. I've been told that Dodgers are really enamored with Glaber Torres, home run hitting infielder. The uh, Yankees have obviously got a bunch of young pitchers. One that I was told the Dodgers like is Luis Severino. They've got, obviously, AAA players. There's a young shortstop third baseman, Osvaldo Peraza. So I think the Yankees, are they are there. Beneath the luxury tax, they could write a check. They could make the deal. Do the Yankees have the volume of numbers of young players that the Dodgers do? I don't think they do. And a weird one is Tampa. And I, I don't understand where this conversation is coming from because historically they've been a developmental franchise. Historically, they've been a 50 to 60 million payroll franchise. Historically, they've been a mess in terms of the stadium, the Suncoast Dome, Tropicana Field. But evidently, the conversation is that Stuart Sternberg, the lead owner, is willing to do this because their organization depth-wise has got tons of talent, as witnessed by how much they've been in the pennant races the last five years. And they think Otani could plant the Tampa Rays flag to help them get over the top, get the stadium built, and really create a furor. They got a lot of young guys. Some are at the big league level, a whole pile of them in Durham and other places in the farm system. Those are the four. If you're asking me to rate them, I think the Dodgers have the most talent. I think Tampa's got a ton of talent, but most of it is unknown minor league phenoms. Then you got the Mariners with their linkage to the Pacific Rim and Obviously, all things pinstripes on Broadway. Your thoughts? What's going to happen? This is interesting. Um, like on a couple of levels. So the Tampa idea is is novel, and I, like yeah, the new stadium, getting people fired up. He could ignite, uh, you know, the business opportunity there. I don't know if Artie Marino would trade him to the Dodgers unless he just got overwhelmed with the package. But let me ask you this, Lee: the Padres last year gave up a ton to get Juan Soto. Do you think the package that the Angels get back for? Otani is the equivalent of the deal? Good call. Has to be. Has to be. Which is why I think the Dodgers make the most amount of sense. I mean, I just ran through, what, six pitchers? Mm-hmm. Some of top, some of AAA. Four or five younger everyday players. There's got to be some combo of five for one. Would it, would it strip mine the Dodger farm system? Yeah, it probably would for a while. But historically... Who, who are they? They develop kids. Yeah. They play kids, etc. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the Dodgers have the most. Um, do you think they trade Otani by August 1st? You know, it, it just is such a big deal with so many tentacles. You know, you wonder if it can get done in that amount of time. But, you know, Moreno knows that it, it's a lost cause. He's got to get something back for him because I don't think he's going to re-up in Anaheim. Well, my gut feel is if they trade Otani for a a, a package a gold mine of talent that'll be the first press release the second release he should sell the team Mm. period exclamation point because the fans have had enough of the failure despite his intent and i've been a long time artie moreno supporter i just can't see him continuing to own this team just by virtue of everything that's he's been involved in there that has not worked out and now you're trading a hall of famer yeah Uh, you know i it flashes back in my mind the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New yeah. York Yankees back in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And I recall that the owner of the Red Sox was a theatrical Broadway producer. 
And as a byproduct of the deal, they got like $250,000 cash <laughs> in 1905, whatever it was. Yeah. You imagine how that, that amount of money in that era? Well, this deal has got to be as big as that deal yeah. in terms of personnel, et cetera. All right, before we move on to the next topic on the table, because NFL training camps are opening, we gotta, we're going to talk NFL football. John, talk to everybody about how they subscribe, what we do with this podcast, regular Thursday package, Monday bonus package, and what we want these followers on our live stream to do in fans form. All right. Well, so what we love you for to do is to like, follow, share, and subscribe across all the different social media platforms. Of course, subscribe wherever you get your audio podcasts or on all the platforms. The downloads in the audio only space, like on Apple Podcasts, have really been booming lately. So it's really getting traction there. Um, be sure to subscribe if you can on YouTube. You know, we always live stream Mondays and Thursdays on both YouTube and on Facebook and on Twitter too. But the fans forum, you got to type it into live into Facebook or YouTube. And um, yeah, and then where else? Threads, Instagram, TikTok. I mean, you're all over the place, Hacksaw. And by the way, if you like sports, please check my website. There's the address right up top, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. I write on it every day. The best 15 minutes in sports, Hacksaw's headlines, one man's opinion column, and your votes in Hacksaw's mini poll. And you can subscribe on that too. Share, tell a friend. And by the way, give us a thumbs up. And if you can, give us five stars as a rating. John, let's talk NFL football as training camps are about to open everywhere. Yeah, the training camps are opening. We just talked about a bad owner in baseball. Now let's talk about one in the NFL. A big story just breaking on Thursday afternoon. Daniel Snyder is no longer a member of the National Football League's ownership group. Sale was approved by the owner's then $6 billion purchase price. Daniel Snyder is removed within an hour after the sale was voted through. Daniel Snyder was fined $60 million by the National Football League, which released a 28-page report put together by their investigator into the toxic workplace culture that Daniel Snyder ran as the owner of the Washington Redskins, then, of course, the Washington Commanders. Now, Snyder, a year ago, had been suspended for one year and fined $10 million for workplace environment issues. They went deeper and deeper in the Mary Jo White investigation. What they determined in the 28-page report, I got to read most of it in the afternoon, What they determined is he withheld what was $11 million in revenue-sharing money that's supposed to go to the other owners. There's another $44 million of money that was supposed to be shared that is unaccounted for. In addition, he's been involved in these sexual misconduct lawsuits. He's just been hit with a lawsuit by one of his former vice presidents who charged the Snyder mandated they hide season ticket money, not report that, and not return the money to the fans in a timely process. Daniel Snyder refused uh, to go to Congress until the very end and then met with them for just a brief period of time when Congress did a hearing into the toxic workplace culture. He only met for one hour with the NFL investigators and answered virtually no questions. This is a pretty despicable guy. In fact... My opinion is, as it relates to Washington, D.C., outside of the other despicable guy named Trump, this guy is the second most despicable (laughs) guy in Washington, D.C., and now he's gone and he's moved to London, England. 
Uh, Josh Harris comes from the NBA, 76ers owner, owns the New Jersey Devils, pretty good business reputation, very stoic, very stable uh, operation of the sports franchises. Uh, it's interesting, the Washington Post is writing an editorial tomorrow uh, that that this despicable guy destroyed one of the great integrity franchises in the National Football League, the Washington Redskins. And closing comment, ain't America great? <laughs> you can buy that franchise for $800 million as he did in 1999, win only two playoff games since 1999, commit all these horrible, tasteless acts, and then sell the franchise for $6 billion. Isn't America wow. great? <laughs> America. <laughs> yeah, so this is an incredible story. I mean, honestly, the $60 million, you just told me about all the money he withheld. That seems like he got off light because it's almost just a make good for the money that was originally owed. They couldn't prove, they couldn't find it because none of the vice presidents that worked directly under him in his hierarchy testified, nor were interviewed by Mary Jo White. Really? They don't have subpoena power. That's the big issue. Okay. Well, I mean, Washington, D.C. deserves a better ownership group with, you know, we always think of them as the Redskins in that history. Uh, But, you know, as the commanders, they need a new owner. They need someone good. So I'm hopeful this uh, this guy with the NBA background, maybe he's going to make a big difference. In America, great. Unbelievable. (laughs) Okay, move on. Let's talk about training camp storylines. Okay, yeah, we could talk about the Chargers here. And have they really kind of addressed their needs on the defensive side of the ball? Well, Brandon Stanley moves to his third year as head coach. I mean, every Everybody likes him. The guy is, he's, I view him as a bright light. X and O's guy, uh, he's, I think he gets tremendous response from his players. But that being said, you have to learn how to win at crunch time and the most important part of the season. And I can't get the bad taste out of my mouth, and I bet they can't either, blowing a 27 nothing lead <laughs> to the Jacksonville Jaguars in the yeah. playoffs and losing that playoff game. That being said, young team, You have to learn how to win. Good headline. All offense. Outside of the era of Dan Fouts and Eric Coriel, and then Phillip Rivers, LaDainian Tomlinson, Antonio Gates, this might be the best offense the Chargers have had, or maybe even supersedes them with the ability to go deep in the playoffs. you got the quarterback, Justin Herbert. you got the running back, Austin Eckler, for at least one more season. As productive as there is, you got three to four wide receivers. you got a bunch of studs that they've drafted and now gotten healthy and put in place in the offensive line. No holds barred. I think they're going to be great on offense. Defensively, they got issues. They were ravaged by injuries in the interior of the defensive front until Austin Johnson proves he's totally healthy to go with Sebastian Joseph Day and Morgan Fox. And that, that threesome was pretty good when healthy. Until they can prove they can stay on the field healthy, and stop the run, it's going to be a challenge. They do have Joey Bosa. They have Kilo Mack. I think they're a little bit thin at linebacker. I would have never let Drew Tranquil go, go across the street to the enemy in Kansas City. I think outside of Derwin James are a little bit thin in the secondary. They still do have some cap space. Have to win this year because, John, they're going to be $60 million over the cap next season. So this roster that they start in camp with on Monday – is not going to be the same roster a year from Monday next season because they're going to have to move guys off the roster and they still have to take care of Justin Herbert and what many approach to be a $50 million a year contract extension because that's the going rate for star quarterbacks in America, great. Uh, what do you think? 
Good question. I mean, this team was, was that Jacksonville loss was so Chargers when that went down. But, you know, I look at them and, yeah, you're like, right, the wide receivers are unbelievable. But I've been hearing more squawking about this, you know, the NFL not paying the running backs enough, you know, and they always cite Austin Eckler. And this is kind of becoming pervasive across the league, right? Yeah, the league has changed. It is a passing league. It's a quarterback's league. But you still got to be able to run the football. And if you've got a guy who is, is as diverse as Austin Eckler is, you take care of him. Now, granted, you know, the other the other conversation piece that nobody in the executive offices of the Chargers will talk about is 30 years of age. When you cross that threshold, sometimes your productivity goes away. You know, Ezekiel Elliott's had a phenomenal career in Dallas. He's 28. He does not have a contract. And that's a heavy-duty wear-and-tear guy. But Eckler, Eckler's had only one injury over the course of his career. He will be bumped up to 85 million if he has a banner season. Then he's a walk-free agent. We'll see what happens on the marketplace. But all offense, you know, I guess their theory is, hey, we'll beat Kansas City if it has to be 43-42. We think we now have the gunfire to go do it. No defense until they, they prove it. Okay. Do, do they have a power running game? Do they have someone no. to complement Eckler? No, it's throw and it's run Eckler and throw to Eckler and then they've, they've got young backup backs they think are going to take the next step forward. But I, th- I think they've they've checked off every box on the offense. I think this is a really good offense, but it's going to have to be because I don't know that they're good enough on defense yet unless they surprise me. Okay, from that team, let's go cross the street. Yeah, well, actually in the same stadium, you know. So the Rams, what do you think here, Lee? Do you, do you think they have a shot this year? Nice headline. Roster does not lie. <laughs> really? You know, they, they auctioned the whole future off two years ago, win the Super Bowl. Made the deal to get Matthew Stafford. Good acquisition. Team got old. Team had a wide variety of injuries in the offensive front. Had no legitimacy at running game. Stafford got hurt. Neck, back, spine. He's back totally healthy. But the big issue is, do they have enough around him? 14 veteran players who were starters have left this team since the end of last season. Wow. Uh, Jalen Ramsey, Leonard Floyd, Bobby Wagner, Ashawn Robinson, Taylor Rapp, all on the defensive side. Had 14 draft picks. Didn't do anything in free agency because they had no cap space. Signed 24 undrafted street free agents. So it is really outside of, of the quarterback, Stafford, and the superstar defensive tackle, Aaron Donald. It's really a team of no names going to have to prove itself. Do think, nobody's talked about this quick fix in the offensive line. I think they've had a really good offseason. Steve Avila was a number one draft pick, and he is a warrior of an offensive guard. Logan Bruss out of BYU was supposed to be a starter last year, got hurt in training camp, missed the whole season. He's back. they got three young offensive tackles. One of them's got to replace since retired Andrew Whitworth. I do think the offensive front's going to be better. I just don't know who's going to play defense around Aaron Donald because all those guys I just named who left or playing somewhere else. And if Sean McVay didn't like being 5-12 and 12 last season, what do you think it's going to be like this year if he goes 4-13? and Because I just <laughs> don't think they have enough players. That's my theory on the Rams. But you know what? You won the ring two years ago. Hope you enjoyed it. But boy, it's going to be a painful road back. That's usually what people say is, get me a championship and it's okay if we stink for the next 10 years. At least we won one. Um, but here, this is a total tangent question for you, Lee. The Rams have had a lot of different uniforms over the years, mm-hmm. over the decades. Do you have a favorite? I don't like what they've been wearing of late. 
mm-hmm. the design. They must have got that from somebody in third grade. That's, how could you think that looked good? I I like the blue and that form of gold. Mm-hmm. I like the ram's horns. I think if they wrote, went back throwback, I would really like that. I think L.A. would like that. Now, granted, the Chargers are snazzy because they got powder blues, and they got the all-whites, and they got the lightning bolt, which is historical in its nature. I, I just think, that, yeah, the Rams need to go back to what the Rams were from a stylized uniform helmet standpoint in the Eric Dickerson era, and obviously well before that. And when they were a Super Bowl-type team, that's what I would do because, boy, I sure don't like what they got on that right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the Dickerson era, you know, Vince Ferragamo era, that was a classic look. The Deacon Jones with the blue and the white, that yep. was that was clean. Uh, but, yeah, some of these new versions I've been seeing have, have been kind of wacky. Uh, so... But isn't it odd, too, that both teams are blue and yellow? You know, they're there in that stadium. So I guess it makes it easy for the people that run SoFi. Yeah, but they got Chargers are really powder blue yeah. more than they are anything else. Okay, those are topics on the table in NFL football. Let's talk college football because, boy, there are a lot of stories spinning right now. Yeah, so th- this conference, you know, it's a drama. Every day there's like some new update on the Pac-12 or the Mountain West. What are you hearing now? If you read my website, you'd know what's going on in the Pac-12. If you read my website, and I write on my website every day. So somebody somebody help John understand how important my website is daily. Here's the latest on the Pac-12. Uh, Media Day is Friday. We expected that they were going to release the terms of a new media contract. It's still a work in progress. The presidents are kind of intimating in the Pac-12 university structure that this is going to be a bonanza deal. It's going to be better than anybody leads on to understand. Mm-hmm. I'm led to believe that there may be three media partners. I keep hearing Disney, and now I've heard CW Network, which is diving into the sports world, has really not been in it. And then obviously, some form of streaming. I was told that when this thing is done, the Pac-12 dollar value may be almost as equal as the Big Ten. Wow. Now, the SEC is distributing $61 million per school, but that's the SEC. But the Big Ten, if that pushes to $50 million, that's a hell of an upgrade. If it's, if it's in the 40s, which is what the Big 12 is, that's still an improvement. So as, as many people were running down the street screaming, the Pac-12 was burning to the ground. We don't have a media deal. What are we going to do? We lost USC, UCLA. What's been intimated to me is now there's a theory. If George Klyovkov, the new commissioner, the new president, who replaced Larry Scott, who ruined this whole thing, if George walks in the front door with a TV deal that's going to net them 37 to 40 or maybe 50, the theory is we don't need to expand. We'll just stay at 10. And we got Oregon and we got Washington and we got Arizona, Arizona State, and we got Neon Dion in Colorado and our conference can be okay. And I'll tell you, if this, if this annual payoff goes to that 37 to 40 or maybe 50 million a year package, that's a bonanza. And therefore, we don't need to cut another piece of the pie to give San Diego State or SMU something. There's a, there's a theory out there, and it spins in now to what's going on in the Mountain West Conference also. There's a theory out there. What does San Diego State bring? TV sets, yeah, maybe, 
But nobody watches San Diego State football on TV. Hell, they don't even go to the games. Average struggle average 17,000. Nobody in Dallas is watching SMU football on TV. They're Texas Longhorn and Texas A&M Aggie, Baylor Bear. So I think there's a misnomer here that, quote, TV sets are going to influence San Diego State getting an invite, SMU getting an invite. People are kind of intimating to me that guys that I work or network with who are pipeline guys that have their hands on the pulse of the of the Pac-12, of the opinion, this conversation, there's a stream there that says, we don't need to expand. We'll just share this big pie amongst the 10 that have stayed. And everybody's waiting to see what life for UCLA and USC will be like going to the Big Ten a year from now. You know, and I, I talked to a USC person today and I said, you're traveling 21,000 miles in 12 weeks in college football. 21,000 back and forth wow. to all those Big Ten games. And by the way, so is your basketball program. And how do you think baseball and volleyball and tennis, because those schools, Bruins, Trojans, are taking their entire group of athletic teams to the Midwest and the East Coast to play games. Wow. How do you think that's going to work out? I think it's absurd, even though it was all dollar-driven. Okay, so that's where we are, Pac-12. That's where we are, Mountain West, San Diego State. Finalized the deal to stay probably two more years. They have to pay all the legal fees for the junk that happened with the bad letters that were written by the <laughs> president yeah. de la Torre. You know, the Mountain West has kind of openly said, we understand the landscape continues to shift. If they leave, they leave. We were thankful that they were here. It's going to be catastrophic from a, a TV contract standpoint if the Aztecs eventually leave. But I think they're locked in now for at least two more years. And then we'll see if what's fact or what's fiction with the Pac-12. Stay at 10 or bounce back to 12. And does San Diego State and SMU really bring anything to the conference? Okay, that's my spin, yours. It's amazing. Imagine if you're J.D. Wicker. You're running the program at San Diego State, and you're seeing maybe $50 million a year coming in on that Pac-10, Pac-12 deal, and you're only getting, what, three from the Mountain West? I mean, what a difference. What a just a radical inflection point potentially for San Diego State if they could get in. But you hear the stories like, yeah, is it the TV markets? Is it? Is it they want to, you know, the recruiting turf, they want to have a presence. But in the end, it's all money. It's all dollars and cents. So, yeah, if they kept the 10 and they were able to keep them all together, it's not a bad way to go. I mean, it's unfortunate we're losing those two teams um, in SoCal. But if they have the remaining 10 and they stick together, we might be able to you know, have something special. But if it keeps eroding, then everything's going to blow up. Well, if, if they announce the TV contract with whomever... If it's the three broadcasters that I just mentioned, they announce a TV contract. That means each of the universities has signed the deed of rights, the deed of grant to stay in the conference for the duration of the deal. Okay. So that means there can be no Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah defections. They will be going forward with this big money deal. So I'm not sure where it goes. We'll talk more about the Aztecs maybe a week from now. One other college note you want to talk about. Yeah, just I always love talking about Coach Prime. I think he's got a really interesting opportunity in front of him in Colorado, but he's, he's still dealing with a lot of health issues. Yeah, Neon Dion having two more surgeries on top of the ones that he's just had. Oof. Deion Sanders has had to go back in for another blood clot formation in one leg. And he's going to have a second surgical procedure on two of the healthy toes that are still left on the other foot. It just it continues to crop up. 
He continues to say, I will be there in camp and I will coach the Buffaloes in August in camp and then obviously to the start of the season. But his health woes are really significant. And and whether this is genetics or whether this is a byproduct of injuries that he had when he played in the National Football League for Atlanta and other teams, he's obviously got significant blood circulation issues that have now affected both legs. He's had two blood clot surgeries in one leg, another blood clot surgery in the other leg. He's had two toes amputated. Now they're doing another surgical procedure on two other toes that are still there. So he's he's got some health issues. But CU football, it's going to be worth watching. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm excited for him. But isn't it just incredible because we always think of him as a player, as one of the most dynamic, explosive, athletic guys on the field, and now he's having trouble just walking. I, I wonder if you lost all your toes, can you still walk? I mean, you, your balance would be off, wouldn't it? I would think it would. Not, you know, that's why every time you see him now and anything that was related in spring football to the Colorado Buffaloes, he's on a golf cart. Ah. Uh, so I think that's where that is. I'll never forget him the intercepting passes at Jack Murphy Stadium. Going down the sidelines with the 49ers, hand behind his head, high-stepping. I yeah. thought somebody was going to come off the sidelines. Somebody's going to come out of the stands and pop him. But I hope hope this works for them because he's, he's surely changed a lot of things at Colorado, and he's created enormous conversation and controversy as we've gone away. Okay, from football, we got NBA basketball to talk about. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about Lillard and, and you know, James Harden, not too long ago, but they're still kind of percolating on the trade market, right? They are still in Portland. They are still in Philadelphia, respectively. And now suddenly comes the stories. They may not be tradable. You know, it had been thought immediately right around the NBA draft that Damian Lillard was going to be traded to Miami in a big package deal. But the deeper they've dug into this, Miami doesn't have the right fit of players that Portland wants. And Portland's not giving away the franchise player. We find out now about his contract. He's got four more years to go on it. The last two years, John, his dollar value is $60 million per season the wow. last two years of the contract at age 35 and 36. Suddenly Miami says, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> and by the way, if you want to move them, maybe Portland should pay a piece of the contract each year. So that's a big issue. James Harden. Coaching staff just coming in. Nick Nurse does not want to move him. That's a big issue. I think the other issue is this is age 36. And the third issue is what trails James Harden. There's a chemistry issue here. You look at James Harden, unhappy Oklahoma City, unhappy in Houston. James Harden, unhappy other places. You're going to inherit that if you're the L.A. Clippers? And the other thing is Clippers don't have what... Philadelphia really wants. Clippers have got forwards with big contracts they're trying to move, and Philadelphia wants young pieces and high draft picks. Clips don't have many of them. So as much as Harden wants to play there, I just don't know how this deal gets done. So suddenly, they're at a stalemate in Philadelphia in terms of conversation. And I think Clippers, the Clippers have the player issue. They got the salary cap issue. And Philadelphia's got the reputation issue that is in his suitcase of being chronically unhappy. Everywhere he's been, mm-hmm. there have been some problems somewhere down the road. So that's, that's why those deals have not been made yet. And, of course, obviously, 
the Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Max contract thing kind of looms out there right now. Wow. I mean, it's, it's tough. You know, Portland, remember back in the 70s, they were really good. They won an NBA championship. Oh, Clyde Drexler and the boys. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even back earlier with Bill Walton and that whole group. Rip City. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you, sometimes you forget about Portland, you know, of all the cities in America, sports cities. So I always like it when Portland is you know, relevant. And it's a shame that Lillard, who is probably a national treasure that a lot of people don't get to see. But I think the NBA has changed so much in the last 10 to 20 years where players are dictating where they go. You don't really see that as much in the other sports, but maybe there's a limit to that, to your point, because of the way the rosters are constructed. Well, as the contracts have exploded, now suddenly you're not trading for just Damian Lillard. You're trading for the extended contract, and you're trading for what's at the end of the contract, which has massive salary cap implications. He wants out. Portland's not getting him away. And now suddenly there's teams that might have liked him look at that deal and say, whoa, not me. You pay for some of it, maybe. Mm -hmm. And Portland is demanding crown jewels for their marquee jewel of a player. All right, before we move on, explain fans form and what's going to happen a couple minutes from now for everybody who's with us on our live stream. Yeah, so we can get you involved in fans form. I see a bunch of guys here. I see John and Emmanuel and Manny and George. So if you want to jump in there with some questions or comments for Hacksaw, type in your question or comment in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube and we'll get you involved. And a reminder, if you like sports, please check my website. I write on it every day. I want you to message everybody you can subscribe to also get the alerts. Uh, Hacksaw's Headlines, Best 15 Minutes in Sports, One Man's Opinion column, and take part in my Hacksaw mini polls. It's just absolutely amazing the volume of information that you get. <laughs> it is amazing. Okay, let's move on. Well, what what a great Thursday it was in pro soccer. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to kick off Women's World Cup. I'm fired up. Yeah, Team USA plays Friday. It'll be a 6 p.m. West Coast start against Vietnam. This is a very different Women's World Cup. Field has been expanded, John, to 32. It's never been like that before. Eight newcomers have never played in World Cup competition globally. They're in this tournament, including Team USA's foe of Vietnam. Uh, There's huge controversy. And FIFA is walking around like there's no problem. FIFA is the (laughs) governing body of football across the globe. Team USA... Women's team, if they go the distance, Team USA will be grossly underpaid compared to what the men got. And here's the total dollar value. FIFA has confirmed last year in Qatar, the men's tournament, they were, the men's collective prize pool was $440 million. Mm-hmm. This year, the women's collective pool is $110 million. That's all that FIFA is making available. There's a terrible, terrible imbalance. And the women are really upset. And, of course, Team USA's women, led by uh, Megan Rapino, she was very vocal, which led to a lawsuit, which led to a settlement in which the men and women were in red, white, and blue get equal play for in- equal pay for international play. So that's the next crisis on the horizon. But FIFA's walking around saying, enjoy the tournament. Don't worry about four hundred forty million versus one hundred ten million. Mm-hmm. So there's an uproar coming uh, in women's soccer over the disparity in pay. Team USA, Alex Morgan, uh, Megan, uh, the power player that Morgan is, the great dead ball talent 
that Megan is. And now we see the next generation, which is going to be featured. Keep in, keep in mind names like Allie Thompson. Keep in mind Trinity Rodman. Keep in mind Sophia Smith. This is the next group. Because Alex and Megan are probably, this is the last time we're ever going to see them play. One upset already on opening day, Norway. Norway got beat 1-0 in the first game they played in group play. And like I say, this is really different. Uh, we got all these new teams, different styles coming on board. So this can be a fascinating three to four weeks of women's soccer. And Team USA... First throw-in, 6 p.m. West Coast time on Friday against Vietnam. They got Portugal uh, in their group. Obviously an opportunity to to move on to the knockout round. Well, yeah, it's great that we're actually going to see it at a, at a normal American time. Because I know some of these games are on in the you know, wee hours of the morning, depending on when they break it down under. But, it, it you know, as much as we want to see, you know, the men and women on par – I mean, the reality is, is that there's a lot more corporate sponsorship. There's way more money in the men's game. You know, you, you may not like that, but that's the reality. So the fact that, you know, one gets 400 million, the other one gets, what, 100 something? 110. 110. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's just business. Now, if, if Team USA decides to balance the scale and spread the wealth around, that's on them. But, um, you know, I think the Women's World Cup has only been in existence for a pretty short time. So it's not as big of a worldwide phenomenon as it is for the men. They did not trigger the amount of TV revenue they had hoped for. Because a sport, as good as it is, dynamic as it is in some pockets of the country, has not arrived globally. It was interesting at the final press conference yesterday. Somebody posed a question down under in Australia at the press conference. Why has Team USA dominated and why is the globe trailing to catch up. And somebody mentioned something I had never, ever thought. Title IX. Hey. Title IX in college athletics has just been a difference maker in terms of growing talent, funding intercollegiate programs, allowing women to compete at the peak level in their conference. And I don't care whether you're at USC as a Lady Trojan or you're at Dartmouth College in New England. They said Title IX has fast-forwarded the development of female in all types of sports, and that's not the same in Europe, and that's surely not the same in South America. Isn't that intriguing? That is, that is interesting, um, but it makes sense because, you know, in Europe, they have this amazing developmental program for young boys, and we America was always at, you know, the disadvantage. Exactly. Because we only had really college as that pathway. Well, now— flip it around. Now the college program for the women put them at the top of the heap. Yeah, good on them. Yep. On we go. Let's talk about what's happening in England. It just started on a Thursday. It's going to be fun before it's over. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see the course and, and the windswept conditions there along the Irish Sea. Well, it opened with rain, and you know when you're playing in the British Open, the weather can change. You could get all four seasons in one day. Uh, the other thing is the course, the Royal Liverpool course in Hoylake has just kind of been reconstructed. They have a, a 17th hole. It's only 136 yards long, but it abuts the sea. And the green is like a postage stamp. And the green rolls. And if you hit it on the wrong side of the pin placement, it could roll from the green into the ocean. If you hit it on the <laughs> other side, it rolls from the green into a, that's a Hot bunker. Wow. It's phenomenal. Uh, the big names teed off. 
Like obviously, you didn't get up at one thirty-five this morning to watch the opening ceremonies in the first round, but uh, they they did tee off. Uh, Tommy Fleetwood is part of a three-way tie for first place after the first round. All the big names struggled. Mm. Uh, most of them are four to five shots back. Rory McIlroy, who just can't find his putter in his bag, he didn't make hardly any putts in his final round at the Scottish Open, even though he was right there at the finish line. He struggled to make putts today. Virtually everybody else did, from Dustin Johnson from the LIV to Phil Mickelson. To, it, it, just, it was really surprising that those guys are the leaders. The leaders are at five under. The bulk of the big names that we're familiar with were anywhere from one under to three over, which wow. that, that puts them in a big hole mm-hmm. going to the second day cut day, and obviously they have to make up a lot of ground. And nobody knows what the weather's going to be like. I just, I love the festivities. I will tell you that if you close your eyes, you just think about St. Andrews and Carnoustie and Royal Latham and Royal Liverpool and just a great array of British Open courses. And if those courses could talk, would they tell you a story about the great golf that's been played since the early 1800s by Sir Thomas More there? But it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. And on top of everything else with the course and who's hot and who's not, John Ramstam's at the press conference yesterday before the first round started, and he was asked, his impressions of where we're going with the PGA and the LIV and Congress and all that. And he's the only one that said this. PGA should not have to pay any of our players any loyalty bonus. Nobody's ever said that. Hmm. He says, we make a great living. We have the best tour in the world. We don't need a loyalty bonus. But every guy who defected has to pay a re-entrance fee, or Hmm. you might call it a fine. They have to answer for what they did when they violated their card. So whereas Rory McIlroy has just kind of gone gone silent, John Rahm stands up and says, this is what I think. This is what should happen. By the way, we don't need loyalty bonus money. We make a great living on the PGA Tour. And he's not American. He's Spaniard. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting angle. I mean, but definitely, you know, the guys that remain on the PGA Tour, you would think they would kind of be, you know, given a little something. But, you know, maybe just proud of what, who he is and the, and the line that he took on this whole game. But you, the thing I'm thinking about here at the British Open is that when we see golf played in America— there's so many trees and the lush greens, bright green <laughs> colors. And you go to, out to England, and it's like you're playing on the moon. It's called the Lynx. Yeah. Actually, it kind of resembles the back 40 here behind your mansion, <laughs> kind of rolling hills and open. But, I mean, you, you have to learn how to cope because these elements in England and Scotland are so different than what we're playing in the U.S. You know, historically, the U.S. Open has been just a very tough, tough place to play. It's an obstacle course, not so much a golf course. But here, this is an obstacle course, and you got to deal with the elements because all these courses are on the Irish Sea or the, the Firth, as they call them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's phenomenal. You, If you get a chance to look at any of the second round, third round, fourth round Sunday, just look at the courses Look at the high rough, understand how the wind blows that might change. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if it rains, you're in big <laughs> trouble. Bring your poncho. Right. Uh, and, and just watch the greens because they play slick 
and they have bounces. And I just think it's the most entertaining thing of, of golf. I think it's it's just wears the golfers out emotionally because they're not just playing the course. They're not just dealing with the pressure of being in the British Open. They're dealing with a they're dealing with all those elements that are circling around on the pressure points, et cetera. It's, I think it's a fascinating four-day event. It's going to be fun to watch. You know, we just watched Wimbledon, right? And uh, we saw they had a royal box at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. and I, I, I saw you know, you know, the Princess Kate was there, and. Are they going to have the royalty there up in Liverpool for this? Do you think? I haven't. I have not heard that, but it might well be. Yeah, because they do appear at events, and this pal, this is a big event. Oh, okay, yeah. on we go. Fans form. We got questions, answers, opinions. Let's see what the people on our live stream have got to say. Where do you want to take us? Okay, let's uh, let's start here with John. He says, if Soto would agree to an extension with the Padres, I think it would energize the clubhouse. Saw how players holding out for free agency really messed up the Nationals clubhouse. The only thing you need to know, any conversation involves Juan Soto and the San Diego Padres is Scott Boros. Mm. Boros is going to take this client on the open market November one. Uh, after next season, after 2024, and then the Padres will try to bid if they still retain him or maybe they trade him before that point in time if this thing comes off the tracks. But because of that guy, Scott Boros, John, I don't think there's any deal coming. Boros wants to take this next client to $50 million. although it appears to me Otani is going to be the first one that's going to get to the magic $50 million mark. Yeah, I think we're a lot of us are wondering how valuable is Soto. I mean, is he four hundred and forty million? You know, valuable is he five six hundred million? I mean, obviously Otani's a layer up from that, but uh, you know, we, we've just seen enough of him. We realize his defense isn't what it should be. A lot of times he's looking for the walk rather than looking to drive the ball. So you're like, well, what is his value? Maybe he passed up the best deal he was going to get in Washington. Could well be. He's represented by Scott Boros, who's going to try to get him the mega deal. Only time will tell. But that's why there is no deal right now and probably won't be a deal because that name is going to take that player on the open market. Next question. Next question here. This is from Emmanuel. He says, talking about the Pac-12, does the Pac-12 network continue or does it become part of a streaming service? Yeah, I think it evaporates. And I I think based on what I've been able to piecemeal together, there will be an on-live presence. I don't know whether it's going to be Disney and ESPN or ABC. There will be a live TV network presence. Now we're led to believe there might be a second network, which might be the CW, which is now diving into professional sports. Then there will be a streaming service. And I'm not sure if that's Apple or who that is. But there could be as many as three different partnerships to watch these games, see these games, etc. And I think that's why it's taken so long, because you got the cord-cutting problem with cable. You've got, obviously, the advertising economic issue, which is impacting who's bidding and how much they're bidding. And now, all of a sudden, these late late gamers have jumped in here and want to be part of it and come up with a, a piece of, of the pie. So I would think within the next two to three weeks, we're going to get definition of how that structure looks with the Pac-12 Pac conference, and the Pac-12 network was a disaster. Larry Scott goes off in the sunset, got a big payday, burned it through an awful lot of money, leading the Pac-12, created the Pac-12 network, and then they never, ever got the kind of distribution that they needed, which I think really hurt the conference a great deal. It's just interesting how you know all these conferences are built. I mean, if you were to blow up the whole model, 
how would you rebuild it? Would you just make them regional conferences or would you have them as, as tiers like SEC one, Big Ten two? I mean, what's your angle on the no, right the way money, to do it? The money's driving everything. So, no, nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. They're not going to restructure so they take less money. Of course not. I mean, yeah. you know, and each of these conferences thinks that they're a power player. Southern Southeastern Conference and Pac-10, Big 12, Big Ten, ACC is kind of hanging on for life. But that, I mean, those those are the power guys, and there's nothing going to change that. There's not going to be any structure there. The group of five guys, and we'll talk more about this. To be an AD in a group of five school right now, I think is really really hard because of the economics of that yeah. are going on in the world of sports. We move on. We move on, and this is from Manny, and he says. Who's the team leader or team captain for the Padres? I know the Dodgers have two, Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. I think that's a problem because I don't think the Padres have one. I'm not going to be cruel and say there's a bunch of independent contractors in this in this clubhouse, but I just don't think that the Padres have that type of leadership. I mean, the, the ace of your pitching staff, Yu Darvish, does not speak English. I mean, he's a great pro. My goodness, what a nice career. Joe Musgrove might well be, but pitchers normally are not the leaders in the clubhouse. Blake Snell is just a really different persona. <laughs> so he's not he's not a leader. Um, maybe Tatis becomes that leader. I don't sense Machado is that leader. I think Machado is just a great individual player, and he might be a future Hall of Famer. And I just don't know where Soto is in terms of being a complete package guy. And every time, every time we talk about Soto, it's always about dollars. It's about the contract or where does he fit? Will he be traded? You know, Manny, you raise a great point. I think it's a leaderless team, and I think maybe, maybe indirectly, that's a bit of an issue. Now, I think I, I think Manny is growing into the role. You know, I mean, when he was obviously when he was a punk in in, in Baltimore, he was not a leader. But he's matured, and I'm seeing some aspects of that, just how he conducts business while he's in the dugout. Um, but Musgrove clearly is is a leader in that clubhouse on the pitching side. But he made some interesting comments. You know, He said, you know, we'd still be a good team if we didn't have Blake Snell or Josh Hader. What you, would you think about that? I don't buy that because you would, you would be down two of your marquee pitchers. Who are you going to replace them with? Yeah. Who do you think at El Paso? You know, who do you think it's San Antonio you're going to replace him with? I'm just surprised he said it out loud. Well, he speaks his mind. That's okay. No problem there. I think he's obviously protective of everything that's in that clubhouse downstairs at Petco Park. But he is uh, he is a leader, but sometimes it's tough for pitchers, quote pitchers, to actually be leaders of the rest of the everyday roster. We move on. We move on. So let's get some of our social media commenters in here. And we'll start with... Uh, some Clippers talk. How about that? And this is uh, from Peter um, C5, C51 on Instagram. He says, as a fan of Kawhi, he once had the league in his hands. Now he can't even play half a season. Paul George hasn't been the same since his Oklahoma City days. Rebuild. Get what you can now before it's too late. Well, there's two ways to look at it. You're so really close if you could keep Kawhi and PG on the floor that if you make the deal to get James Harden and some of the young kids that you have played that have shown flashes take the next step up, you're really close. But are you close to the point you're going to give max contracts to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George? We talked about that last week. You know, the max contract is four years, 220. They're not taking anything less. And if you don't give it to them, 
then it's a signal they're going to leave at the end of this coming season. So the Clippers are really at a tough crossroads as to what do they do? Do they trade what they have left to try to get Harden and that becomes the big three and that works? Or do you give up just because of the bad injury history between Kawhi Leonard and, and Paul George? Tough call for Steve Ballmer. Really tough call. But to me, they are so close. I would just try to keep it together and go one more time. And if they break down again this year, let them walk. Let them opt out. And then you get into total rebuild mode. Right. If you trade them, I don't think you're going to get superstar, quote, value back in the package that's delivered to your front door because of their injury history. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think given that when they're both on the court at the same time, the team is spectacular. So they just got to hope that those guys will stay healthy. I mean, they can't really do anything else. Like you said, if they if they traded away, you know, PG-13 or Kawhi, they might get some young guys, but they're not going to be, you know, a championship level team. That's going to still be putting it off years down the road. So I think you got to stick with it and hope the stars align. On we go. Social media sounding off here on our fans forum. Where do you want to go, John? Okay, let's talk a little Oakland A's. This is from Sergio Fernandez. He says, all the money in the East Bay is on the other side of the mountain. Danville, San Ramon, then up the 680 freeway to Dublin and Pleasanton. That's where the A's should have built the stadium to rep the East Bay. No way in hell are any of those people driving to Oakland for a night game to get their car windows smashed or to get held up by one of the locals for their watches or wallets in 2023. Ooh, that's pretty nasty stuff about the citizens of Oakland. Um, Understand that at one point it looked like they were headed to San Jose, which is a market unto itself. And then there was obviously talk about Sacramento, the state capital. And Major League Baseball let his San Francisco Giants, he's the one that's got the Giants cap in his man cave, He his Giants blocked any effort for the Oakland Athletics to move anywhere to get a stadium constructed. So they're they're gone. I don't think they're ever coming back. I don't think Oakland's going to get a franchise back. And Oakland, I hate to say, is a dying, decayed city. But obviously their economics don't work anymore. And they've lost all their franchises. The NFL has vacated. The NBA has vacated. You know, they, they lost the NHL team way back in the day. And now baseball has has exited. So... San Francisco's Giants, his team will own the market. Yeah. Well, you know, even in the East Bay, I, I, one of the social media commenters was talking about how Golden Gate Fields, you know, the race track is for, closing is closing as well. So, yeah, just a lot of chaos. But it's still surprising that they can't make it work on the East Bay because there's still a lot of money there. It's just... The stars haven't aligned there at all. Exactly. On we go. On we go. Let's talk about, uh, this is a kind of a harsh take here, but I want to get it out there. This is from Daniel Caseta talking about uh, Christian Pulisic. And he says, nothing is worse than listening to an American that hasn't watched Chelsea's games throw in his, quote, insight. Plenty of injuries, no consistencies, too many chances, very fragile, and more worries about his social media than his fitness. Thanks for your service, but stop the drama. Oh, he must not like anything you said about <laughs> Chelsea. Couldn't mean talking about me. I've watched, I, I mentioned all those things about availability, about nagging injuries, about persona. You didn't mention Thomas Tuchel, the coach who he's had, Christian Pulisic's had, kind of a real edgy relationship. You know, old school European coach versus young American trying to learn on the job. So be it, it didn't work. Chelsea has has removed itself from a whole pile of good players. I don't know what their side is going to be like going forward. 
Um, I am surprised that Pulisic exited EPL, that he's gone to AC Milan, because as as great as Milan has been, as great as FC Barcelona, Real Madrid has been in Spain, the league collectively is not on the same radar as the English Premier League. I thought somebody else would make a run at him, but maybe the dollars didn't fit or... You know, maybe at the end of the day, Chelsea said, oh, he could play, but he's not going to play in our league against us. So it just didn't work. The nagging injuries, I think, have been the issue that has really retarded his development. But yet he's come back stateside. And when he's played for Team USA, and he's been fairly healthy during this the stretch run they had with Burhalter in the, in the last World Cup, and obviously this lead up to 2026, the kid has he's not a kid anymore. He has grown into a man, grown into a leader good player. Now, you know, is he Harry Kane? <laughs> nah, I don't think so. I mean, Harry Kane's a phenomenal sniper in the English Premier League, but uh, we'll see. He's still got an awful lot in front of him at age 24, so I am surprised didn't work out better, but he never was able to stay on the pitch on a consistent basis with injuries. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough break for the kid. But, you know, when is Pulisic and all the other stars going to return to the men's national team? Because we just saw the Gold Cup. They had their B team in there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's all part of an international schedule mm-hmm. in which the leagues allow their players to go play for their national side. So, again, 2026 is a little bit away here. So there'll be <laughs> there'll be plenty of opportunity for Team USA to continue to grow and come together. I'm, I am so amped about U.S. soccer because of the next wave of young guns. I mean, I'm, I am a Pulisic fan, but boy, when you see all the young guys that they just played uh, in, in the Nations League tournament, now the, the Gold Cup roster was a, another group of young guys. You see all the guys that played in the Nations League, and you add them to what they've got right now with Pulisic and Weston McKinney, they're going to have some snipers along the way. It's very, I think they've, they've built this thing really well, and we're still two plus, two and a half years out before we get to 2026. Yeah, I'm, I'm fired up too for the men's, but really the women. They're on the stage right now. So this so is you're not offended great. that Chelsea guy was ripping you, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's take a couple more here on social media. Sound off. All right, th- this is from uh, from Ryan, and, and he's talking about, yeah, the, the robo-wump here. The ABS challenge system currently being used in the International League is great. Each team gets three challenges on balls and strikes, but only the pitcher, catcher, or batter may challenge challenge if the challenge proves the ump got the call wrong the team keeps the challenge awesome system it's an interesting structure uh but again rob manfred this past week just kind of put it to bed said we're not going to consider robo ump going forward in 2024 now there may be some glitches maybe technically it's just not a perfect system yet but with technology I think you can solve, whether it's camera angles, number of cameras, location, you can solve that if you really want to do it. But I tell you, the umpire in baseball, I think, is hideous. The last three years, I wrote a column about this a couple days ago on my website, which you need to check. I wrote a column that years ago, about five to seven years ago, the American and National League had separate umpires. And baseball interceded, dissolved that. All the umpires went into one pool. Now you work games anywhere and everywhere. And they they restructured the strike zone. And then they put a rating system in for all these guys calling balls and strikes. And it could be pretty harsh if you were a screw-up. And we had a group of years in which there was consistency. And that's all anybody wanted. But, boy, the last three years, it, I think the balls and strike calls have changed. I think they're erratic. I think they're... 
different from the first inning to the fifth inning. They're different high. They're different low. They're different paint in the black. It's To me, it's a big credibility issue in baseball. And we've also had an enormous turnover of veteran umpires, a la the Joe West of the world, retiring. So I think baseball's got to find a way to get consistency again at home plate between what's a ball, what's a strike. And there is a human element. I do understand that. I also understand that's pretty wicked crap that you Darvish is throwing out there on the mound. <laughs> yeah. And that ball moves and that ball jumps and there's bite. And then you add into the equation, that catcher is framing pitchers. They've made this a science. And that catcher is bobbing and weaving and moving. So the umpire's job is really hard when you consider velocity and you consider bite and you consider the movement of the pitch. It's a tough job, but you got to do a better job. You got to fix it. And I don't know if the robo ump is the solution, but right now baseball says no, we're not going in that direction for at least one more year. But boy, what we've seen, boy, bad, really bad. I mean, balls that are four or five inches outside the zone to the left or the right or up above. Um, it's incredible. And also, the I remember when I was a kid, it's the strike zone was from the, your letters to your knees. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not even that anymore. It's really from your belt to your knees. And and they even get that wrong as well. So, yeah, bring in the robo-ump. I think it'll be a huge improvement. I heard you screaming. I thought it was a dog howling, but it was you screaming out <laughs> balls was, and strikes in a Padres like, game. Oh, this just drives you nuts when I you see it. I can understand you. It's like a bad dog whistle. <laughs> All right, let's take one more here before we put a lid on this. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Otani. He's always a good guy to chat about. This is from David Moss, and he says, he had three points about Otani. He says, number one, Otani is under no obligation to speak with or answer any questions from prospective teams looking to trade for him. He already stated at the end of the season he was going to hit free agency no matter what, um, where he finishes the season. Number two, Angels sucks, mostly due to poor pitching. Already never cared about the pitching. He likes the big bats. He has no issue rolling out big contracts for big hitters, even if he overpays for washed-up hitters. And number three, he will get higher than $500 million for 10 years. Uh, you said a mouthful. Uh, Angels are a mess. Part of me says, Jesus, owner screwed this thing up by interfering. Part of me says the owner spent a lot of money and it didn't quite pan out. You know, whether it's the horrors of giving that kind of money to a, a guy who had drug addiction like Josh Hamilton or just the bad siege of black cloud luck that hangs over Anthony Rendon, who got a ton of money and can't stay on the field. Uh, I feel sorry for Mike Trout. He's such a warrior. Otani is such a great player, and I think Otani is one type of special person. For for him to do what he does as a DH and as a pitcher, and the regimentation to be a major leaguer, and do all the prep that he has to do at two positions, and not burn out, hmm. that I mean, and not run out of gas, and not get hurt because you're beaten down, he's a phenomenal guy. From a media perspective, gee, I wish he could talk to us about free agency and his thoughts on it, but he refuses to do it. And CAA, his agency, has said, November 1, we're taking him free agent. So I I accept that. Uh, I'd hate it for the Halo fans to lose him, but it's business. It's not personal. To quote the Godfather, it is business. It's going to wind up being business. And then the bigger question is the next 10 days, two weeks, do the Angels trade him and take a plethora of young talent from somewhere else and rebuild this thing. That period exclamation point, that's my theory. Well, imagine if, you know, he gets more than 
500 million over 10 years. He gets, let's say, six, 700 million over 10 years. And you got all that money invested in him. And he blows out his arm. And he's Tommy John surgery. I mean, he's out for two years and he can't pitch and he can't hit. So that's a lot of eggs in one basket. I'll tell you what. But, you know, these contracts keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger in Major League Baseball. You wonder if they're ever going to peak. And they'll say, we can't go beyond that. But the money, the revenue just keeps going up. Well, the revenue keeps going up. There is obviously arguments about salary cap. Union won't sign that memo, I'll guarantee you. Uh, You know, that's why I made my comment about a month ago that Artie Moreno should offer him a five-year, $50 million per contract. And people just responded terribly. Why the hell would you do that? (laughs) Well, dum-dum. The fatality rate of pitchers is really significant, yeah. and he's already had one elbow surgery. So I'm offering him five at the state-of-the-art money today, and if he breaks down in that five-year run, he's still going to be my DH or my outfielder. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, you're not signing him for 10 years thinking he's going to be a 10-year starting pitcher. I mean, the, the era of Glavin and Smoltz and Maddox, mm-hmm. that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So... I'll be I'll be intrigued to see how this turns out. My my heart, my gut says that they have to trade him because there's been no conversation or no solution to any conversation that's gone on. And you know, if the Angels are trying as hard as they can to hang in the wild card race, if the season falls apart and it's going to fall apart because they just don't have enough pitching, they got so many injuries. No Mike Trout for eight weeks, and Rendon is back on the injured list. I mean, it's it's like Otani against the world by himself. So I I. I think he's going on the market, and I think he's going to get mug of money. And the question is, should before we get to August 1st, should they trade him to restock the coffers at Angel Stadium? Yeah, poor Artie Moreno, man. He's damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. Um, and, you know, he's tried. He's made some bad choices. He's made some good choices. And then players get hurt. There's injuries. There's Sadly, there's deaths. You know, maybe Artie Moreno may need to just sort of hit the reset button in his life and let someone else have a run with the Angels. It's all the franchise. I concur with you. And maybe we should just indirectly say thanks to Otani. He took a lower price contract to come to Angel Stadium when he was coming out of Japan. I mean, the money money was out there for him to go lots of places. He chose that place. So maybe instead of having a nervous breakdown here and spewing all types of venom that Otani and his agents, that's not good. Just say thanks, because he gave us six really fascinating years in Major League Baseball. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our live stream and our Thursday podcast. A reminder, we do a bonus podcast on Monday. If you like what we're doing, the mandate, the memo, it'll be in your email box. Tell a friend. Email, text, message. Let them know what we're doing with our brand new podcast, what we're doing with our bonus package. Check all the different platforms because we put a lot of unique stuff out there. Subscribe and share. And because John has no friends going back out to left field, give us a thumbs up. Give us five stars if you can. John, have a great sports weekend. We sure covered a ton of topics on the table. I'm going to be watching the U.S. women Friday at 6 o'clock against Vietnam. USA, USA. Hey, have a great sports weekend. Thanks for joining us again on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.